20 years ago, the concept of worldview was really kind of a buzzword and stuff, and it's, it's never stopped being important, and it's important for us to be thinking about how we, how we see and understand the world we live in. I mean, it's on, you know, rapid pinball, so many changes all the time, and, uh, and we begin to brainstorm things along those lines, and numerous people within and without of RYM uh, said, Dr. James Anderson, Dr. James Anderson, get him in front of your people. And I didn't even realize, but there's a bunch of you guys who've had him as uh, uh, professors through various R uh, RTS global classes, and it's fun to see, I wanna meet you in person. So that only just confirmed, you know, I'm excited about having Dr. Anderson with us. Thank you for your ministry in the classroom and in your church and your community. Um, thank you for being with us. And uh, I'm just gonna get out of your way and uh, cut you loose. We'll take a break around 10.30, but that's not like if you feel the spirit rolling, you know, if you need to move past that, that's fine. Uh, since we're only, we're the only class who can kind of flex a little thing. But anyway, um, but we do want to give you a chance to break as well as them. But anyway, thank you very much for being here. Dr. Anderson. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here and to try and uh, serve you uh, in some way this morning. Uh, when I was a young guy, uh, I was uh, part of a, a group at a church um, of young men who were uh, being mentored to preach, give us some opportunities to preach and taught how to preach. And one of the pieces of advice I was given in that group by the guy who was over it was, whenever you go to preach somewhere, wherever you go to speak somewhere, you should always be at least as well-dressed as the best-dressed person in the room. And I've taken that to heart. And as I look around the room today, I think, I'm probably safe. I think I, <laughs> I think I pulled it off this time. I think I may have overdressed a little bit. But anyway, it's not really about what I'm wearing. Hopefully, it's about what I'm saying. Well, before we go any further, uh, let's just uh, uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, you are truly amazing. This is a a glorious day that you have given us and a glorious world that you have made and we are in awe at the beauty and wonder of it and that you have placed us in it and made us stewards over it. Uh, but above all, we thank you for the precious gift of your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus, the uh, most uh, precious treasure that you could share with us. Uh, and we give you all praise, praise and glory. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not just in the world, but in your word. And we pray that as we um, think about some important things this morning, that you will help us to use our minds well, to love you with our minds, as well as our hearts. We ask, ask in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by inviting you to join me in a thought experiment. Now, you may know what a thought experiment is. A thought experiment is the kind of experiment that philosophers do. So scientists, they do their experiment with chemicals and, you know, uh, big reactors and things like that. Well, philosophers do experiments as well, but they call them thought experiments. And the great thing about thought experiments is they're very inexpensive. You can do them anywhere, and there's absolutely no danger of blowing yourself up in the process. So uh, you're safe. I'm going to invite you to do a thought experiment, to think about a scenario and think through some of the implications of it. So here's Here's the thing I want you to, you to imagine. I want you to suppose that uh, someone in your church, uh, let's say it's a, it's a lady, maybe a middle-aged lady, 
has very suddenly and very unexpectedly fallen critically ill. And she is taken to the hospital, and the doctors do tests, and they can't figure out what is causing this condition, but they do know that she is in critical condition, and then unless something changes, uh, she will be dead in 24 hours. It's that serious. And uh, they try different treatments, and nothing is working. They've run out of options, and they say, there's really nothing we can do. Uh, you've got to prepare for the worst. Now, news of this gets shared among the church members. This is a beloved member of the congregation. And you hear about her critical condition. She's in hospital, maybe on life support. Uh, what do you do in a situation like that? You can shout out. What do you do? Pray. Of course, you pray. Uh, you, the whole church would be called to prayer as an urgent matter. And Maybe even the church would call people to come uh, and pray at the church, a, a prayer vigil, something like that, praying through the night. Well, suppose your church does this, gathers people together to pray urgently, to plead to the Lord for this woman, that she will, uh, her life will be preserved, that she will uh, make a recovery. Well, suppose that you are, you are praying, and in the small hours of the morning, you get word from the hospital that her situation has dramatically turned around. And she started getting better. And they've taken off life support. And all indications are that she's going to make a full recovery. And the doctors have no explanation for this. They don't know why she suddenly made this recovery. It was nothing that they did. There were no indications that this was, go was going to happen. But she's turned a corner. And within a day, she's out of hospital and back to normal again. And the doctors, again, they, they can't explain this. Say, we've never seen anything like this before. Some of them may even use the M word, miracle. This is a miraculous recovery. Now, how do you interpret those series of events? So this lady falls critically ill. The doctors uh, don't know what exactly is causing it. Uh, they, all they know is that this lady is going to die. Uh, your church prays. She gets better. There's a series of events that happen. What kind of interpretation do you place on them? Well, most likely your interpretation is going to be that the Lord intervened, that the Lord did something, that there was some sort of divine intervention. And it wasn't just a coincidence. It was actually in response to prayer. You prayed for the Lord to preserve her life, and the Lord answered the prayer. That's the way you interpret those events. Well, if something like that happened, you would probably be pretty stoked about it, and your church would be too. You'd be singing the praises of God. Uh, everybody would be feeling, you know, very, very good about this outcome. And suppose that you go to work. Maybe you work in, you know, a Starbucks or a restaurant or something like that. And you've got a, you've got a work colleague. We'll call him Bob, okay? It's a pretty neutral name, okay? Bob. And uh, Bob is an atheist, right? And he's not just any kind of atheist. He's a really sort of... Um, uh, aggressively anti-religious atheist, got a bit of a chip on his shoulder, doesn't like religious claims, thinks it's all ridiculous, nonsense, superstition. He's a big fan of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and these new atheists, and he devours all their books and likes getting into debates with religious people. In fact, he's such a fan of Richard Dawkins that when Richard Dawkins had a heart attack, uh, Bob wanted to honor him by not praying for him. By the way, that actually happened. I actually saw that online. Not Bob specifically, but fans of Richard Dawkins. So that's the kind of guy. You maybe come, in, come across someone like this. And you, you know, you and he's, he's always sort of taking pot shots at your Christian beliefs. Well, you go into work and you say, Bob, 
Uh, you're not going to believe this, okay? Just wait till I tell you what happened. There's a lady in our church. She felt critically ill. They took her to the hospital. They said she was going to be dead within 24 hours. There was absolutely nothing she could, they could do. She was on life support. The doctors had no options left to them. We prayed for her. And then within hours, her situation dramatically turned around, and she's made a full recovery, and the doctors can't, can't explain it. And Bob says, wow, that's incredible. There is a God after all. What time is your church service on Sunday morning? <laughs> Some of you cynics are laughing. But you know that that's unlikely what Bob is going to say. More likely, Bob's going to say things like, there's a natural explanation for that. We, d we don't know why these things happen now. We maybe can't explain that now, but there's some natural physical explanation for these sort of things, and one day we'll figure out why these things happen. Science will explain these things to us. That's the faith of an atheist, by the way. Eventually we'll figure out how these things happen naturally. But he'll say, yeah, you know, it was a coincidence. Sure, you prayed. Religious people pray all the time, but nothing's happening. There's no one up there listening to it. There's an entirely natural explanation for this. I maybe can't tell you what it is, but there's nothing miraculous here. There's no God. So the interesting thing here is that the series of events, in a sense, are public knowledge. They're a matter of public record. You could sort of check them out. There doesn't have to be disagreement over a series of events themselves in simple terms that this woman was in hospital. You and Bob could bo both go and speak to the doctors. You could see the tests. You could interview this woman. You could get her testimony about what happened. You could be in agreement about the basic facts, and yet your interpretation of the facts is radically different. You see it as the intervention, the answer to prayer of a personal loving God, and Bob sees it as some uh, inexplicable for us random, uh, natural uh, event with nothing supernatural about it at all. What accounts for the radically different way that you see these events? You're living in the same world. You're seeing the same things. You've got the same facts available to you. Why is there such a radical difference between the way you see things and the way Bob sees things? The simple answer is you have different worldviews. You and Bob have radically different worldviews, and that, in that influences crucially, how you see things, what kind of conclusions you draw from your observations of the world, and just in general, what kind of explanations you're willing to countenance. Well, that's just an introduction to the idea of a worldview. Let's get a little bit more specific, okay? What in the world is a worldview? You've probably heard this term used. It's quite commonplace these days, uh, but I want to be a little more specific about what I mean by it. So here's the first simple definition of a worldview. A worldview is just a way of viewing the world, right? Worldview, a view of the world. But it's not a physical view of the world. I mean, if you look out the windows here, it's a wonderful view. You, you can see the world, okay? You've got a view of the world. But I'm not talking about a physical view like that. Rather, a worldview is more like a philosophical view of the world. And not just the world as in our planet, planet Earth, but all of reality, it's a philosophical view of everything that is real, all of reality. A worldview is like an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and that matters to us. That's the basic idea. But here's a slightly more detailed definition of a worldview. A worldview is a network of ultimate beliefs, ideas, values, and assumptions about the world and our place in it 
that shapes how a person understands their life and experiences and the lives and experiences of others and how that person acts and responds. Okay, so the world itself is a, a network of beliefs and ideas and uh, values and assumptions that are, are, are about ultimate matters, and I'll, I'll clarify what I mean by that in a moment. And it sort of shapes the experiences that you have, what you make of them, how you interpret your experiences of the world, put it crudely, your inputs, okay? You get inputs from the world. What do you do with those? How do you make sense of them? And then it also influences your outputs, what you say, how you behave in the world, the way that you act. So that's a more technical definition of a worldview. A worldview is sometimes also called a world and life view, or sometimes a world and life view, because it's not just about things, it's about life, about how you live in the world. So what are some important things uh, that we should know about worldviews? Well, the first thing to say is that worldviews are like belly buttons. Everyone has one. It's just that we don't talk about them very often. Or perhaps a, a better analogy would be to say that worldviews are like cerebellums. Everyone has one, but not everyone knows that they have one. You're all smart people, so you know that you have a cerebellum. It's right in here. It's part of your brain. It's a very important thing. But there are a lot of people who go around every day. They don't even know that they have a cerebellum, but they do. It's very important. If they didn't have one, they'd be in trouble. So they have one, but they're just not aware of having one. A worldview is a bit like that. It's not something that people think about directly or are, are, are typically aware of, but it more sort of sits in the background of their consciousness tacitly shaping how they think about things, the sort of conclusions they, they draw from their experiences of the world. So everyone has a worldview, and so the question isn't for any person, do, do they have a worldview? The question is really, what kind of a worldview do they have? And if you are a Christian, as I assume we all are in this room, then you have a Christian worldview, or at least you should have a Christian worldview, sad fact is that there are many people in the world who profess to be Christians. You know, when they do the polls, they answer, ask the question, you know, what, 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 do you have a religious faith? And they say they, they, they check the Christian box, but they don't really have a Christian worldview in the sense of a biblically defined worldview. But that's the worldview that Christians ought to have if they're committed to Christ and his word. A worldview involves what we might call big question beliefs, big question beliefs, beliefs that answer or address the big questions of life, the kind of questions that human beings have asked since the dawn of time. Is there anyone out there? Is there a God? And if there is a God, then what is God like and how can we have access to God? Where did the universe come from? Where did it all come from? Where did human beings come from? Is there a reason that we are here? Do we have some purpose? Is there meaning to life? Does life have any meaning at all? Is the world of sense experience actually real? Most of us assume that it is, that when we look outside and we see trees, we think that they're real things, that they're trees. Actually, there are some religious worldviews, typically Eastern worldviews, that say uh, the world of sense experience isn't real. Actually, it's just an illusion, and there's a true reality that's beyond sense experience. I was also reading this week that more and more scientists are now taking seriously what's called the simulation hypothesis, that we're actually living, all living in a computer simulation, like the Matrix. And there are some philosophers actually making this argument, people taking it seriously now. But is this world that we live in real, that we perceive? 
These are the sort of big questions that people ask, and the worldview addresses these big questions. But what that means is that not every belief that a person has is part of their worldview. Your worldview isn't all of your beliefs. It's only those beliefs that have a really foundational philosophical or religious significance that shape, that have implications for everything else. So, for example, if you have the belief that American football is the greatest sport ever invented by mankind, that wouldn't be part of your worldview because it doesn't affect the way that you see everything. Or if it does, there's something wrong with you. It shouldn't be that important to you. I'm also tempted to say it's a false belief, but I, I don't want to go down that road this morning. But, you know, we have ordinary beliefs about this and that, but it's only those that have real foundational significance that are part of our worldview, big question beliefs. A worldview, we might say, functions a little like an intellectual filter, filtering how we think about things. Or, to use another analogy, like a pair of spectacles. So imagine if you had a pair of spectacles and they had colored lenses, you would see the world tinted with that color. It would affect how you see things. And a worldview is like that. It affects what you see and how you see it. And it affects everything that you see in the world and how you see it. Let me illustrate this in a, in a couple of ways. First, with a, a visual analogy. And this is just an analogy. Hopefully, yeah, you can see that fairly clearly. So here's a message, a message on the screen that reflects the world as we believe it is, as Christians. Okay, this reflects uh, the way that we see the world there's wisdom in our God's book. There's wisdom in our God's book. And it's, it's multicolored to reflect all the variety and the di diversity of the world as God has created it. Well, now at this point, what ideally I would like you to do would be to take out a pair of green tinted spectacles and look at this screen. Now, obviously, we can't do that because I haven't given you and you've bet you don't carry around with you a pair of green-tinted spectacles. So instead, I'm going to simulate, okay? Because this is a real computer simulation. I'm going to simulate what you would see right now if I asked you to put on some green-tinted uh, spectacles. Ah, a very, very different message, isn't it? There is no God, okay? Well, that's what happens when you have the wrong worldview, when you put on the wrong intellectual lenses. You become blind to some things. Some things get underemphasized. Other things get overemphasized. Things get misinterpreted and misunderstood when you have the wrong worldview, when you're lo looking at the world through the right lenses. Now, that's just a, a visual illustration, of course. So uh, here are a few real-life examples of how worldview can, can affect the way that someone interprets things in the world. Uh, the first one would be the introductory illustration that I told you about the, the answer to prayer. Typically, what Christians interpret, I think entirely reasonably, as uh, answers to prayer, the way that we interpret them, the reason that we interpret them in that way, is because we have a background of assumptions about God, that there's a real God who hears our prayers, who's able to act in the world, that he cares about the things that we uh, ask him for, and so forth. So, uh, we interpret those things in one way, whereas an atheist or a naturalist is going to interpret them in another way. Another pretty striking example of the role of worldviews uh, comes when we think about the debate over the theory of evolution. And some of you may have thought about this, may be interested or have read up on it. But, of course, there's a, a big debate today between, on the one side, the 
creationists, to use a general term, those who believe that the universe and life was created by an intelligent God, and the Darwinian evolutionists, who say that life evolved over millions of years from single-celled organisms by a process of natural selection and genetic mutation. So there's this big debate between uh, the creationists on the one side and the evolutionists on the other side, and there's a debate over what the evidence is in support of the theory of evolution. And so Darwinists, like Richard Dawkins will say, typically there is overwhelming evidence for the theory of evolution. For some reason, it's always overwhelming evidence. I don't know why it's always overwhelming, but we're meant to be overwhelmed by it. Uh, that there's, there's just, uh, so that Dawkins will say something like, anyone who denies the theory of evolution is either uh, stupid or, or wicked or just hopelessly uninformed, okay? Once you know what the evidence is, you, you can't resist the conclusion. So that's the evolutionist side of things. And then on the creationist side of things, you've got people, and I would be one of them, and I suspect you would be as well, who look at the evidence, and we're not overwhelmed, we're underwhelmed. And we say, well, actually, when we look at, at the, the world of the physical world and the world of uh, biological organisms, we see strong evidence of design, of intention, of purpose, of complex things built up for a particular purpose in an amazing way that couldn't have happened by chance and natural processes. So we look at the evidence and we draw a very different conclusion. Now what's going on here? Why is there this such this radical disagreement? Is it because people on one side are very, very smart and the people on the other side are very, very dumb? Is it that the Darwinists are super smart and the Christians and creationists are dumb? Well, no. I mean, there are some very, very smart people who are creationists, intelligent design theorists and so forth. Is it that the creationists are the super smart ones and the evolutionists are the dumb ones? No, I mean, there's some very smart people on the other side as well. There are some very dumb people on both sides too. I mean, that's just human nature, right? Is it then, is the problem then that the, that the evolutionists have access to some evidence that the creationists don't? They know things that the creationists don't. They've got evidence and if the creationists had it, then they would see things the same way. Or is it the other way around, that the creationists have certain evidence that the Darwinists don't have access to? Well, no, all of the evidence is publicly available. You can look down a microscope at a cell. You can you know, look at the stars through a telescope. You can do all of the evidence is completely publicly available. So what explains this difference? Well, a number of people have come to the conclusion, and one of the first people to really make this case was a guy called Philip Johnson in a book called Darwin on Trial. Johnson was a, a basically a Christian lawyer who hadn't really thought about it, and he read uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker, just on a whim. He found it in a bookstore, and he read it, and he thought, this is, this is a terrible argument in support of Darwinian evolution. Uh, there are circular argumentations here, leaps of logic. So what's really going on here? And Johnson came to the conclusion that this debate wasn't a debate about evidence at all. It wasn't actually a scientific debate. It's a philosophical debate. It's a debate about what you think are the fundamental realities in the universe, whether you believe that there is a supernatural creator or whether you think that the universe is a closed system of physical cause and effect, natural causes, natural effects, and no supernatural intervention at all. And, Do uh, and um, Johnson argued that if you've got this naturalistic worldview, then you really have to accept something like the theory of evolution because there's no alternative. There's no other explanation you could possibly offer for the complexity and diversity of life on Earth. 
as one person put it, if you're a naturalist, then Darwin in evolution is the, is the only show in town. You've got no alternative. Worldviews constrain the kind of scientific theories that you're willing to entertain and how you interpret scientific evidences. And we could go on with other examples of how worldviews shape people's interpretation of events. And they can reach very, very different conclusions even though they have the same kind of evidence available to them. Now, since worldviews affect how people see the world and how they interpret the world, worldviews largely determine people's uh, opinions on matters of ethics and politics. Think about the big debates that there are today, debates between political parties, between public intellectuals, and so forth. Issues like abortion, pro-life versus pro-choice, euthanasia, same-sex relationships, gender identity and transgenderism, public education, the role of government, big government versus small government, economic policy, foreign aid, use of military force, environmentalism, animal rights, genetic enhancement. Thank you. All of these issues, where a person comes down on these issues will be determined by and large by their worldview. It won't be the only factor, but it will be their worldview more than anything else that leads them to draw certain conclusions on these major issues of ethics and politics. And that's why they're so significant. Now, people can have different worldviews, but they tend to fall into certain categories or types. Okay? So if we went around this room, I think all of us would profess to be Christians and have a Christian worldview. But maybe if we got into some of the details of certain assumptions or the way that we think about God or certain, certain fine matters, there might be some disagreement. So maybe no one in this, world would, uh, in this room would have exactly the same worldview. But nonetheless, there's going to be a lot of commonality. Certainly a lot more commonality than there would be than with our friend Bob that we talked about earlier. And so worldviews can fall into certain types or categories. You can think perhaps on analogy with uh, models of cars, right? So uh, back home, the car that I drive typically is a uh, Honda Civic 2013 model. It's done pretty well. Now, maybe, maybe you also have a Honda Civic 2013. Maybe it's even the same color, same shade of blue as my car. They're not going to be identical in every sense, okay? I'm going to have scratches and dings on my car in places that yours doesn't, right? But they're still going to be basically the same type of car, the same model of car. They're going to be very different, say, than your best friend's Tesla Model S or whatever you drive, you know? It's going to be a different kind of model. It's very different, different category, different type of car. Worldviews are like that. There are certain types. Now... What that means is that there is such a thing as a Christian worldview. Some people have res resisted this conclusion. They said, no, there's no such thing as the Christian worldview. There's just Christians who have a worldview or the worldviews that Christians have. I want to push back on that and say, no, there is such thing as the Christian worldview in an ideal sense. It's basically the worldview that Scripture gives us, whatever Scripture tells us about the way the world is, about ultimate matters, that really is what defines a Christian worldview. And we could sort of add to that certain creedal statements about the Trinity and the Incarnation that have been formulated uh, in the early centuries of the church. 
So by a Christian worldview, what we would mean would be that worldview that we find reflected in the Bible and in the, the early church creeds that define what we call Christian orthodoxy. So people have different types of worldviews. We can categorize them, and we'll talk about some other uh, types of worldview uh, in our second session. Another thing we should know about worldviews is that people can change their worldview. It is possible for someone's worldview to change. You aren't stuck with the same worldview all your life, whatever worldview you perhaps inherit from your parents or your community or your schooling. People do change their worldviews. For example, atheists become Christians. My, one of my best friends was an atheist for the first part of his life, and then as a young adult, he encountered the Christian faith. The gospel was preached to him. He was converted, became a Christian. His worldview radically changed. Sad to say, there are also people who go the other way. They're raised with a Christian worldview, and then for whatever reason, they renounce it, and they declare themselves to be agnostic or atheist or some other religion. So people do change their worldview. But a worldview is a little like a house or a home. I'm switching metaphors. A moment ago, it was cars. Now, think of a worldview like a house or a home that you live in. The home that you live in, you get used to it. You get comfortable with it, and you naturally want to stay there. It's relatively easy to make small-scale changes to your home. So, oh, you don't like the color of the walls? No problem. Just repaint it. No big deal. You don't like that? Paint it again, okay? In your living room, you want to move around the furniture. You move around your couch so you can get a better view of your 90-inch ultra-high-definition TV. No, it doesn't work. Move it back. No big deal. And people can do that with their worldviews. They can sort of tweak it. They can refine it and so forth. But moving home altogether is a hard thing to do. And people generally resist it. In fact, often when people, uh, when, when these lists are drawn up, and what are the most traumatic life events that people experience? Uh, usually at top is things like death, death of a child, death of a spouse. Uh, but usually in the top five is, is having to move, having to move home, especially if you've lived there a long time. That can be quite a traumatic, hard experience. And it's the same with worldviews. People resist change because they get comfortable seeing the world in a certain way. And so it can be quite hard to get them to dislodge the, the worldview that they have. In fact, changing your worldview is part of what we might call religious conversion. Religious conversion. Religious conversion typically involves a change of worldview. Now, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, a true conversion is certainly going to be more than that. It's going to be a deep supernatural change, but it's not going to be less than a worldview change as well. Uh, if someone's worldview doesn't actually change when they become a Christian, then something went wrong somewhere. And that kind of conversion should lead to a change of worldview, seeing the world in a very different way. So that's an introduction to uh, the definition of a worldview and some of the things that we should recognize about worldviews. Now, why do I think that the notion of a worldview is important? Why did I think it was important enough to come and speak to you this morning about this topic, to write books on it and so forth? Well, here are some of the benefits, I think, of understanding the concept of a worldview and thinking in terms of worldviews. Here are some benefits of worldview thinking. First, just a matter of Christian obedience and Christian discipleship. Christians are called to think Christianly. Okay, that's not a real word. I don't think it's in the dictionary, but you understand what I mean by that. Christianly, to think in a Christian way, a distinctively Christian way. Think about 
the greatest commandment that our Lord Jesus gave, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love the God. We're to love the Lord with our minds, with the way that we think about this world that God has made. Or think about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul writes that as believers, we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. No longer thinking according to the patterns of this world, worldly patterns, fleshly, unbelieving patterns, but to think according to the revealed will of God. So we are called to think Christianly. And one of the ways we do this, this isn't the whole story, but one of the ways in which we do this is by developing and applying what we would call a Christian worldview, a basic framework of of foundational biblical assumptions about the way the world is, the way God is, and how we are to relate to the things that God has made. So that's one reason, one benefit of worldview thinking. Some other benefits. Every religion in the world, not just Christianity, but every religion in the world reflects a worldview at some level. Every religion reflects some sort of take, perspective on reality, on what's ultimate, what's real, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. So think of religions like Islam. Islam has a very distinctive worldview. It's almost uh, on par with Christianity in the way that Islam has something to say about everything. I mean, it really does prescribe every aspect of life and tells you the way things ought to be. Mormonism, Buddhism, the various uh, versions of Hinduism. Hinduism is actually a family of religions, but there are different versions. And each reflects a worldview. So understanding religions often means understanding the worldview that lies behind those religions. Similarly, every secular ideology reflects a worldview as well. It's not just religions but what, what we might call secular ideologies or movements reflect a worldview as well, whether that is Marxism. And again, there are different versions of Marxism, but Marxism is a worldview, certainly as Karl Marx himself understood it. Darwinism, the Darwinian view of the world. Postmodernism, variations on postmodernist thought. These are all worldviews as well. It helps us to think about these things by thinking of them in terms of the underlying worldviews that they represent. Worldview thinking can help us to do a number of things. In the first place, worldview thinking helps us to understand why people see the world in the way they do. It helps us to understand where people are coming from, why they see things in the way that they do. I talked a moment ago about this debate over the supposed scientific evidence for Darwinian evolution. Why do some people think that there's overwhelming evidence while other people think that there's overwhelming evidence for design, for a creator. Again, the answer is worldviews. Why is it that on September the 11th, 2001, when those planes were flown into the World Trade Center, some people saw that as an act of despicable evil terrorism, and other people in the world were dancing in the streets and seeing it as a strike for justice and righteousness, and was utterly morally justified. That was a good moral act. How could some people see these, these, these uh, people as terrorists and other people see them as heroes, freedom fighters? Again, different worldviews. Or the debate over abortion rights. Why is it that some people say that abortion is a heinous act of murder, while others will say it's just, it's just acknowledging the basic rights that a woman has over her body? 
Again, the answer is fundamentally different worldviews. Worldview thinking can also help us make reason comparisons between different religions and different ideologies. A moment ago, I mentioned both Islam and postmodernism. Now, how do you compare something like Islam with postmodernism? Aren't they completely different categories? One is a religion, one's a philosophy. But once you recognize that both Islam and postmodernism reflect worldviews, then you can compare them, as it were, on equal terms. You can actually think about them in comparable terms. Or Mormonism versus atheism. How do you compare Mormonism with atheism? How do you compare Mormonism with biblical Christianity? How do you get a real comparison there? Again, by thinking about the underlying worldviews that they represent. Similarly, worldview thinking helps us to make reasoned evaluations of different religions and ideologies to tell whether they make sense, whether they are rationally supported, whether, whether they actually reflect the world as it really is. If you know how to identify a worldview and also how to evaluate a worldview, then in principle you know how to evaluate any religion and any secular ideology that you encounter, even if you've never encountered it before. Imagine you are traveling uh, on a plane, not as many people fly in planes these days, but I was this week. Imagine that you uh, sit on a plane and there's a stranger sitting next to you and you strike up a conversation and it comes to light that you're a Christian and uh, this person says, oh, that's very interesting. And you say, well, do you, do you have any religious faith? And this person says, yeah, I follow the Unga Bunga religion. And you think, oh boy, I, took a, I think I took a course uh, at college on world religions. They talked about Islam and Buddhism. And I don't remember anyone saying anything about the Unga Bunga religion. Uh, end of conversation. No, not at all. You just ask this person, tell me about the Unga Bunga religion. Do, do you believe in God? Or what, what do you believe is the ultimate reality? What do you believe about the nature of human beings? What do you believe about where we go when we die? Find out the underlying worldview, and then you can make a comparison with what you believe as a Christian. You can make a reasoned evaluation of it. And then lastly, uh, worldview thinking helps us to have constructive conversations with other people, including and especially unbelievers. So there are some challenges today in having reasoned, fruitful conversations with people who don't share our Christian convictions. And uh, worldview thinking can actually help us to make some progress there. And I'll say more about that in the second session. Now, before we go any further, I want to issue a bit of a caution. I've explained why I think it's helpful and important to think in terms of worldviews. But I want to issue uh, a brief caution at this point to say that it's possible to overdo it. I was having a conversation with some folks uh, before this session this morning um, who know a bit about the stuff that I write about, some of the books that I've written. And we were joking that I'm kind of a worldview guy. It's my thing. Everybody's got their thing. Everyone's got their hobby horse. And Anderson's is the worldview. He's a worldview. He's always talking about worldviews. Well, yeah, I am because I think it's important. But also, there's, there's more to human beings than worldviews. Right? I think it's important, but it's not the only thing about us. Worldviews aren't the whole story when we're thinking about people and engaging with people. We are, of course, more than just our worldviews. Human beings, as I'm sure you've observed, are amazingly and sometimes frustratingly, even infuriatingly complex. Uh, and that's just the way God made us. I mean, it's, it's 
God designed us this way. In, in principle, it's a good thing. We're complex beings. We are integrated, integrated complexes of body and soul, for starters. There's a material aspect to us. There's also a spiritual aspect to us. Scripture speaks about both body and soul. And we have minds, of course. Our minds are a very important part of us, but they are only a part of us. They're only one of our faculties or aspects. We have thoughts, for sure, what we would call the mind, but we also have affections and we have behaviors as well. What you might think of as the head, the thoughts of the head, the affections of the heart, and the behaviors are the hands, you know, what we, what we do with what is in our head and in our heart. And these aspects of us are interrelated, the head, the heart, the hand, if we're going to use those sort of metaphors, they're all co- impl- uh, uh, related and, and, and they affect each other in complex ways. What this means is that while a person's worldview will have an impact on their affections and their behavior, I mean, that stands to reason, how, how you think about things, your thoughts are going to affect at some level how you feel about things and also how you act, how you behave. That said, you can't fix a person just by fixing their worldview, right? There's sometimes this naive idea that if we could just, if everyone could just have a Christian worldview, you know, every, all the problems would go, we'd all agree about everything, we'd get on with one another, everything would be hunky-dory. Well, certainly it's important, I think, for people to have the right worldview, but you can't just fix a person by fixing their worldview. And so Christian discipleship has to be more than just worldview training. I would argue that that has to be part of it. Uh, You don't even have to use the term worldview. You can use different words to talk about this kind of thing. But Christian discipleship should, I think, involve some discussion of worldviews, the importance, how to think about it, how to apply consistent Christian worldview. But Christian discipleship also has to be more than just worldview training. It has to speak to the affections. It has to speak to the actions, to the habits, the way that we live, uh, our rituals, and everything else. So that's just a caution that uh, I don't want you to get the impression and think that, you know, I think that it's all just about the worldview, focus on the worldview, that's the answer to everything. It's not, but it is an important part of the answer. Okay, let's dive a little deeper into the concept of a worldview. I've explained in general terms what a worldview is, a perspective, an all-encompassing perspective on, on the world and everything. But what exactly goes into a worldview? What are the ingredients of a worldview? Or to put it in, in another way, what does it take to make a worldview? A worldview, I said, involves beliefs, values, ideas, and assumptions. But we can actually categorize these in five areas. And I've, I use this uh, acronym to help us remember what these five areas are. T-A-K-E-S. That's why it's highlighted on the screen. What it takes to make a worldview. That word takes we can use as an acronym to remind us of five key areas of a worldview. Now, this is my way of doing it. Uh, There are actually different ways of of slicing up the cake, we might say, but I think this is quite a useful way of doing it. If you can improve on it, more power to you, but maybe you'll find this helpful. So what is the T-A-K-E-S? Well, the T stands for theology, theology. A for anthropology. I'm sorry to use that word. It's not a nice word, but I needed a vowel to make it work. So anthropology, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. The K is for knowledge. Now, admittedly, it's a silent K, but it's still a K, so it still counts. E for ethics and S for salvation. T-A-K-S, theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. Now, 
Let me take you through each of these and, and explain what I mean by that. Start with theology. Theology, the word theology, as you probably know, just means the study of God, of things to do with God. Theos, meaning God. Ology, from logos, meaning uh, reason, word. The study of God. Every worldview has a theology of some kind. And we can get at it by asking questions like, is there a God? Okay, what does this worldview say about whether there's a God? And not just whether there is a God, but what is God like? You could get two people who both say they believe in God, but when you ask them, well, well how do you conceive of God? What kind of God? turns out they, they actually believe in very different gods. They can't both be right. So what is God like? Is God a personal being, or is God some sort of impersonal, transcendent force? You know, the Star Wars force, something like that. Uh, is God a perfect being? Is God transcendent over the creation? How does God relate to the world? Christians would say that God is the transcendent creator of the world. He is over the world, and the God and the world are distinct. There are other worldviews, particularly Eastern ones, that say that God and the world are ultimately one. The world is within God, and God pervades the world. Everything is divine. How, do God, how does God relate to human beings specifically as a creator? How, how do we understand our relationship to God as human beings? And the most uh, direct, personal, existential question of all, how does God relate to me? Not just to the human race in general, but how, does God how do I understand the way that I relate to God and God relates to me? That's part of the theology of a worldview. Now, you might think theology only applies to religious worldviews, right? It can apply to secular worldviews and specifically atheistic worldviews because atheists don't believe in God, so atheists don't have a theology. Don't you believe it? Atheists have a theology... It's just what we would call a negative theology, a theology of denial. Because when atheists deny the existence of God, they have a conception of this God that they are denying. I mean, why would you say, I don't believe in God, if that word God didn't actually mean anything to you, if you didn't have some concept behind it? So atheists have, make claims about God. They make theological claims, but they're claims about the God that does not exist. And on another level, we might say that everyone has a God, lowercase g, in the sense that everyone has an ultimate. Everyone has some view of what the ultimate reality is, whether even if it's just matter and energy, the physical cosmos, and everyone has a view of the ultimate authority over them, even if it's themselves. I mean, for many people, they themselves are functionally their own god. They idolize themselves. They, they, they call the shots on everything. They're the final authority. So whatever a person thinks is the ultimate reality, and also the ultimate authority, those, in a sense, are their gods, functioning as gods in their worldview. So everyone has a theology in that sense. The A is for anthropology. Uh, anthropology, I don't mean specifically the discipline that you might study at, at college, but in general terms, just what you believe about human beings. Okay, the word anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning uh, mankind, humans, man, mankind. Um, and so anthropology is the stu study of human beings. What do you believe fundamentally about human beings? Our beliefs about God, our theology, certainly affects the way that we see the world, but also our beliefs about ourselves, about human beings, are equally significant. So we can ask questions like this to get at the anthropology of a worldview. Uh, what are human beings? Are human beings creatures made in the image of God with the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? Or... Are human beings just highly evolved primates who developed over billions of years, from millions of years, from single-celled organism along with all life? Are we just 
just a, one twig on the great evolutionary tree? Or are we gods in embryo, as the Mormon church teaches, that each human being actually has the potential to become a god? We have the divine potential within us, and on and on. What kind of beings are we? Where did we come from? Of course, the question of what kind of beings we are is linked to where we came from. Did we come from the creation of God, or did we come from the prebiotic soup from which all life evolved by chance? Are we special in any way? Do I, do I have more value than the cockroach that I saw scuttling around my garage the other week? Or are we just basically equal, equal branches on the evolutionary tree? Or is there something special about human beings? If so, what is it? Are we here for a reason? Are we just a cosmic accident? Or did someone put us here for a purpose? And if so, what is that purpose? Are we basically good or are we basically bad? There are some worldviews that say, yes, human beings are fundamentally good. There are others that will say, no, human beings are basically bad, fallen, in some cases totally depraved, like the Calvinists in the room, right? Or some worldviews say, we're kind of neutral. You know, we're born neutral. We can go one way, we can go the other way. It depends on our environment, our education, different views on the moral status of human beings. And whatever we believe about human beings is going to be connected to our theology as well. The theology and the anthropology of a worldview are going to be closely connected together. They're tied together. Uh, what you believe about God will influence what you believe about human beings. Okay, on to knowledge. The K is for knowledge. The technical term for this is epistemology. Epistemology is a theory of knowledge and truth and reason. And every worldview at some level has a, has a basic epistemology. It may not be sophisticated, but it's going to be there. Knowledge is an important thing. I think we can all agree that knowledge is a valuable thing. Uh, if you have a friend who comes to you and says, uh, he tells you that swallowing a raw egg every day will add five years to your life, you're going to go, uh, that's interesting, but do you know that's the case? Or is that just your opinion? Okay? It matters whether he actually knows that or whether it's just his hunch or something like that. Knowledge is something worth, ha worth having. So, what does a worldview, what does our worldview say about knowledge? What can we know? What can we know about the world? Can we even understand this world? Is this world rationally intelligible? Does it make sense that we can know it in real ways? Or, or are we skeptics about knowledge? What can we know about God if there is a God? Is it possible to know him? And how would we know him? How do we know what we know? Do we know it purely through our senses? As the empiricists say, everything we know has to come through our senses. Or can we know things through a kind of uh, self-evident rational intuition or through mystical perceptions or through divine revelation? Can God speak to us so that we can know something? Different answers that we might have to these questions. Are there limits to our knowledge? And if so, what are they? And how can we increase our knowledge? If knowledge is a good thing, what are the ways in which we can increase our knowledge of the world? What are the ba basic channels of knowledge into our lives? So that's the knowledge aspect of a worldview. Fourthly, we have the E. E is for ethics, or here we're just talking about morality, okay? Everyone, every human being, has some ethical beliefs and ethical assumptions, foundational ethical assumptions or principles that they take for granted. You can't get through life without ethics, without thinking about ethics, without making moral judgments. Turn on any news channel or go to some uh, your favorite social media platform, you will be overwhelmed with ethical opinions and not a few unethical opinions as well. Because people can't help making value judgments. It's the way that we are built. We're going to make moral judgments. Even people who claim to be ethical nihilists can't help themselves. They still end up making some sort of moral judgments. 
So some of the questions we might ask of a worldview are things like, uh, what is the basic view of morality here? Is morality real when we say that something is right or wrong? Are we actually speaking, is that objectively true? Is that making a real claim about the world? Or is ethics purely illusory? As some people, some atheists argue that morality is just an evolutionary adaptation. It doesn't actually correspond to anything real. Is morality objective? Is it the same for everyone? <coughs> or is it subjective? Is it ultimately reduced down to personal preferences and tastes and the way that you feel? So what's right for you may not be right for me and so forth. What kind of morality is it? How do we know what is right or wrong? If there really is a difference between what is right and what is wrong, how do we know? What are the sources of moral knowledge? And why should we be good anyway? There are actually some people who say, yeah, I know what's, I know what's right, but it doesn't suit me. I'm, I'm gonna, I'd rather be uh, uh, pursue pleasure. And if that means doing some immoral things, well, why should I be moral if it doesn't actually benefit me personally? Why should we? What's the motivation for the moral life? And moral accountability. Is there any final judgment? Is there any final accountability? Or can you live an utterly immoral life and get away with it, as many people believe? Our beliefs and assumptions about ethics and morality will form a major part of our worldview. And then, fifthly, we have salvation, the salvation aspect of a worldview, the S. Um, when we hear, when we as Christians hear the word uh, salvation, uh, we immediately think of the gospel, and it's right that we do. We think about God sending his son into the world, making atonement sacrifice for our sins, dying, rising again, bringing salvation to us, redemption. That's true. That's, that's what we mean by salvation. But in terms of a worldview, I simply mean this. Every worldview has some conception of what is wrong with the world and how it should be put right. And what is the fundamental human problem and how is it to be addressed? Because it's quite obvious to pretty much everyone that there's something wrong with the world. There are many things wrong with the world. I never come across someone who said, you know, I think the world's just perfect. I think it's just exactly the way it should be. Nothing, nothing needs to be improved. Everyone thinks that there are wrong things with the world, but different worldviews take different views on exactly what is the problem. What is wrong with the world? And they take different views on how to put things right as well. And notice once again that all of the aspects of this category, salvation, depend on the others, right? If we're asking the question, what is humanity, the human race's most serious problem? Sin, unhappiness, we're destroying the planet, potential extinction. What is the problem? What are the solutions? Are there solutions? And if so, what are there? Are there several solutions? Some Eastern religions say uh, that the solution is enlightenment. But there are many paths of enlightenment, many, many paths up the mountain, different religious routes that you can take. And then there are other religions, Christianity being one, say this Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one solution. What part do we have to play in solving the problem, in, in, in addressing this, in, 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 in accomplishing salvation, finding salvation? And what part, if any, does God have to play? Of course, if it's a secular worldview, then it's not going to say that God has any role. It's all going to be up to us. We've got to save ourselves if there's anyone uh, who's going to save us. We're going to have to solve things and put things right. But notice again how much all of this, all of these questions depend on the theology, the anthropology, the knowledge, and the ethics of the worldview. So there's uh, a way of thinking about uh, worldviews, breaking it down into five categories, T-A-K-E-S, theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. Now you can think of this as a kind of a tool, a tool for your worldview toolkit, a tool for uh, analyzing 
and dissecting a worldview to see its parts and see whether they fit together. And this, what I call the TAKES tool, the TAKES tool, can be applied to uh, individuals. You can ask a particular person what they think in these five areas, or groups of people, collections of people who, who have some sort of common interest or com common religious outlook. You can apply it to groups. You can apply it to um, different religious faiths, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, modern-day Judaism. All of these could be analyzed with the takes tool. And ideologies as well, not just religions, but secular ideologies like Marxism and Buddhism. Uh, sorry, Marx, uh, Darwinism. Uh, these could be analyzed with this tool as well. Also, the takes tool can be applied to culture and aspects of culture. Things like movements, different movements that we see. Uh, third wave feminism, transgenderism, what is now called critical theory. All of these actually have, at least partly, a worldview behind them. Uh, movies, uh, TV shows, books popular books, whether they're fact or fiction. They're underlying worldviews that we can discern using the takes tool. The Star Wars uh, series, uh, the movies, and the whole Star Wars universe is quite a good example because it has an entire mythology behind it. It has an entire view of the cosmos and how things relate together, and you've got the Force and how people relate to the Force and so forth. Now, there are very few people who think that that's a literal. I mean, there are some people. There was a, there was a, a poll, uh, a census in the UK, where a significant proportion of the population wrote in Jedi for their religion. Um, I don't think they were being serious. But nonetheless, there's a kind of underlying worldview there. It's a somewhat Eastern-type uh, worldview that lies behind that view of the universe. And people actually have something like that worldview today. Okay, there's one last topic I want to uh, cover briefly before we take our break and to set things up for our second session. Evaluating worldviews, not just analyzing but evaluating worldviews. All worldviews are not created equal, okay? Not all worldviews are equal in their ability, in their coherence, and in their ability to explain things, and their simple accuracy with regard to how they depict the world. Some worldviews really are better than others. And at the end of the day, and I'm sure you can see this is the case, only one worldview can be true. There can only be one true worldview. Only one worldview reflects the world as it really is, as it truly is. Like the Highlander, there can be only one. Some of you know that movie, right? There can be only one. It's with worldviews, there can be only one, only one true worldview. So how can we discriminate between worldviews? How can we evaluate worldviews so we can help people figure out what is the right worldview to hold. On what basis can we say this worldview is actually better than that worldview, at least in certain respects? On what basis can we say this worldview, we want to say the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, is the right worldview, the true worldview? Well, we could get into the weeds here, but I'm going to keep things relatively simple by saying there are certain tests that we can apply to worldviews, certain tests of evaluation that we can apply to worldviews, or tools of evaluation. So I want to introduce you briefly to four basic tools for testing or evaluating worldviews. Um, there are others, but these will do for our purposes today to illustrate some. Tool number one, coherence. Coherence. Asking the question, do the parts of this worldview fit together well? Do they mesh with one another? 
do they mutually support one another? One of the great virtues of a Christian worldview is that it is coherent. It's theology, it's anthropology, it's it's epistemology, it's knowledge, it's ethics, it's salvation. Fits together very well, like a well-manufactured jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces connect together uh, accurately. So we can ask of a worldview, does it fit together well? There are other worldviews that in their T-H-A-E-S, they're really disjoint. There's conflict between the different parts of the worldview. They don't cohere. Secondly, second tool, explanation. Explanation. We can ask this this question. Can this worldview, whatever worldview we're considering, can this worldview explain things well? Can Can it explain the sort of things that we take for granted, like the sheer fact that the universe exists, that the universe is a stable, orderly place where we can actually investigate it, discern log- uh, sort, sort of natural order, natural laws, and make predictions about the future on that basis? That can it explain why we have this capacity to reason about the world? Can it explain why we have moral sensibilities, how we're able to make moral judgments? Can it explain human meaning, purpose? Can it explain why there is beauty in the world and we have a capacity to appreciate beauty, musical beauty, artistic beauty, and so forth? Can this worldview explain all the things that we as human beings live our lives by day by day and simply take for granted? Explanation. Tool number three, what I call livability. Again, this isn't a real word, but uh, I'm sure you understand what I mean by it. Livability, can you actually live out this worldview in practice? There are some worldviews that maybe are consistent on a theoretical level, but they're a complete disaster on a practical level and that no one could actually live them out consistently on a day-to-day basis. So we can ask of a worldview, can this worldview be lived out consistently in practice? Can you actually take what you believe about the world and about human beings and then live consistently with that? Or is there a conflict between the theory and the practice, between the ideas and the day-to-day living? And then tool number four is the tool of hope. And I think as Christians, This is one that we really want to press on because this is valuable to us. The Bible speaks a lot about hope. Um, One of the the verses in the New Testament that speaks, really gives us the warrant for what we call apologetics, defending the faith, says that when unbelievers ask, we should give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. We have hope as Christians. And we can ask of any worldview, does this worldview offer hope? Does it offer hope for the present in the face of suffering, hardship, trials? A lot of people, most people in this world, suffering. Life is hard for them. Does it offer hope on a day-to-day basis that their sufferings, that their trials actually have some meaning, have some purpose, that some good could actually come from them? And does it offer hope for the future in the face of what every human being has to face ultimately, death? Every, every worldview has to answer that question. Is death the end? Or is there something beyond the grave? Is there any hope for a life beyond death? Hope for the future. So does this worldview offer hope, a credible hope, a hope that you can actually take to the bank for the present and for the future? So these are four tools that uh, I've used in a lot of my material and uh, I've commended to others. There are other ones that we could, we could talk about. But these are uh, four useful tools for evaluating worldviews, coherence, explanation, livability, and hope. And what we're going to do in the second session, 
give you a little preview, is we're going to uh, look at a couple of non-Christian worldviews, very prominent non-Christian worldviews, and apply some of these tools just to illustrate them. And then I want to talk a little bit at the end about how we can actually take some of this uh, and use it in practice in our conversations with unbelievers. So that's all I have for you for this first session, sort of laying a lot of the groundwork for these worldview tools. Uh, we're going to take a break at this point, so I'm going to hand back to Michael, and he'll give us some Awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Anderson.